Hello, and welcome to the How I Got Here series, part of the product-led podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Kaplan, and today I'm super pumped to be chatting with Andres Glusman. Andres, welcome, man. Thanks, man. I'm thrilled to be a part of it. I'm thrilled that you're here. I really appreciate the time. For those that don't know you, founder of Do What Works, you helped launch and scale meetup.com. You had a million different roles there over the years. You're my interpretation, a fellow growth nerd, a surfer, a dad. I'm a huge fan. What am I missing? For those that don't know you, what didn't I share there that's important to know about you, the person? I think you nailed it. Uh, I am a huge growth nerd. I, I wear that as a badge of honor. I am a dad. I'm a casual surfer and I'm a behavioral scientist. So I've always been super passionate about what makes humans tick, which is probably why I'm so passionate about growth and what makes me a growth nerd and why I love experimentation so much. So that's kind of this big, big part of what I'm fascinated by. And I just love exploring and answering questions and figuring out the truth behind what makes people tick. Super cool, man. And for those that aren't familiar, tell us a little bit about Do What Works. Yeah. So Do What Works is a conversion rate accelerator. We've built a technology that allows us to detect, analyze, and report on the growth experiments that are being run by the world's top companies every day. Thousands of experiments are being run every day, and we're able to detect and analyze them and report them to our clients who are marketing and product and growth leaders at some of the world's top companies who use us to be able to help them find wins faster. And I've seen the product as a potential customer, consumer, fellow growth nerd, and it's badass. So if folks haven't heard of it, check it out, doitworks.io. Cool. And so how did this journey start for you, right? You're into growth. You're creating software for growth folks. You identify as a growth nerd. You've got a behavioral science background. Like, how did you get into this space? Take me back to the beginning. Yeah. So, I mean, for me, the big thing was I sort of had this journey at Meetup where we really, at one point, found religion and discovered the power of experimentation. And when we did, it took some doing to get there. And I can share some stories around that. But once we did, we were all in and we wanted to run experiments on everything. And when it comes down to it, like you could run, there's millions of different levers you could pull. And if you had infinite time and infinite traffic and infinite budget, you could get a definitive answer on all of them. But the reality is that most growth leaders, myself included, you only get like 10, 20, maybe 100 optimizations a year if you're lucky. And that was this pain that I felt. So the question was like, how do you take advantage of this most precious resource that is an experiment or an optimization to maximize the odds that will actually make a difference? Super cool. And the reality is that most of the time it doesn't, right? And that's what most people don't talk about, but it doesn't. And so in light of that, the question becomes, well, what can you learn not just from your own past experiments, but what if you could learn from everyone else's? And so because you can't run that many tests a year, if you could learn everyone's experimental results, then that would put you in a position to be able to make bets that are more likely to win. So like one of our clients says, it's like skipping the regular season and going straight to the playoffs, where you just have all the best teams going at it. That's what we want to create. Or that was the motivation behind what we wanted to create with Do What Works. You know, it started off as a toy that my co-founder and I built uh, to satisfy our own curiosity, which was really fun. And we saw it. And we're like, these results are really, really cool. And we showed them to a handful of friends who are in the product and growth space. And they're like, yes, we're going to buy that. I want it. If you make it, we will buy it. And so actually, it was a funny story. Is we actually, uh, the very first iteration of Do What Works, uh, we said, okay, we put up a Stripe page. We just had a payment form online. And the only thing that we had was basically the ability to collect money and we, three people who really took a bet on us uh, were awesome. They, they, they put their credit cards down and we promised them PDFs inside of a month. But uh, sure enough, uh, we actually ended up delivering this like, very first version of a dashboard to them a few weeks later. 
And we've been iterating and growing for them ever since. And now it's sort of taken on a life of its own. You know, we have like three top streaming companies working with us, two Fortune 500 SaaS companies, just a whole collection of like the coolest people that I get to work with, people like you that I'm like, I'm working with my people, uh, which I love. And I'm looking at all this like crazy data that I can't believe I get access to, that I would have died to have access to. And that I sort of feel like I'm pinching myself every day and like, I can't believe I get to do this. And this is my job. That's amazing. And so it's a learning accelerant, right? You can basically learn not just from what's going on locally within your company or owned properties, but you get to learn from everybody across the web. And so all of a sudden it shortcuts what can take years. Exactly. Exactly. And so one of like, for some of our clients who are like on the bigger ends, one of our, our Fortune 500 companies, you know, if they could run 200 tests a year, we've actually delivered to them like what the equivalent of three years worth of experiments in three months. So it's, it's pretty profound, the kind of impact it has. And it's also just really fun and inspiring for people to give them those jumping off points, which is sort of like, I don't know, when you were in your past, I'm sure you probably went to some of these meetings where there's a kind of a readout meeting where you're, everyone is sharing the results of their experiments in your company. And then you see a counterintuitive one, you're like, what? Why is that the case? And those are the ones you live for. And so that's what we get to look at every day. And that's where we're, we get a little giddy talking about it. I get very passionate, wrapped up on it. But that's kind of what it's all about. And um, you know, it's the result of kind of the power of experimentation. And I just, I just love it. That's cool. And so how did you find this space? Like, how did you personally start building your growth skill set? Take me back in time a little bit. Yeah. All right. So it goes back to basically like in college, I was a behavioral, invented uh, behavior. Uh, I invented my major in college, which was uh, there was no such thing as behavioral economics really at the time. And so I smashed, I mashed up psychology and economics to create this new major that I was just so, had so much fun, which is all about like what makes people behave the way they do. And then, you know, after a brief stint of Boeing, I found myself working in the very early days of the commercial internet. And this is 1998. And I was working and I found out that, oh my God, actually, you can run experiments through online ads. And as a result, see like what effect does showing Winnie the Pooh have versus showing the Disney uh, logo. The Disney was one of our earliest clients. Did we talk about this? Because when I worked at Digitas, the ad agency, which is my first gig, Disney Parks was also one of my clients. I don't know if we talked about this. I think we might have. Yeah, we worked with Disney Store Online and Disney Cruise Lines. And so it was just fascinating. We're like, wait, I have these Disney assets and I get to place ads online for them. And I get to see just showing Winnie the Pooh on one ad work better than showing the Disney logo. And in fact, it did. Right. And you're like, wow, this is like a laboratory. The internet is a giant laboratory for human behavior. And if you can figure out how to tap into it, you can learn so much about what makes people tick. So like, I couldn't believe I was making enough money at the time to like eat one meal a day. This is the very early days of the commercial internet. I literally, I called it meal and, and I could eat one meal a day. It was lunch. That's where you get the most food for your dollar. But I was happy as can be. I could not believe that I got to like dive into and work on this data at the time. And so to me, that put the seed in my head of like, wow, experimentation is a really powerful force. And then as a result of those experiments, I did extremely well at the company. I ended up getting promoted a few times. I worked really, really hard. I sort of did my job during the day and I did the job I wanted to have at night. And so what was your day job? Oh, I was an account coordinator. I was like the lowest level person in the company. You know? And is that like buying... Like For those that don't know that space, is that buying and assisting in the buying of like media placements online? Is that going to like finance.yahoo and saying, hey, Monday at 12 a.m., we want to buy it for the day and it's going to cost X? Exactly. But at the time, this is 1998. So like there was no systems or tools. So what I really was, was the 
person who is tasked with doing all the menial stuff that you got to do to execute that buy and to traffic the stuff and to get the data and to smush it together into a spreadsheet. And after doing that for like 40 hours in a week, I got one hour a week where I got to actually analyze it. Right. And analyzing was, was like the dream part. So that was my job. I was like the lowest level. I was really making a scraping by, but then at night I sort of did the job that I wanted to do. And so like for that company, I sort of took on these initiatives and did different things. And as a result, got to end up leading a division of the company that ended up doing some pretty cool stuff. And then that caused me to get promoted. So I sort of like, there's a nice little slingshot through the ranks as a result of, of kind of doing it that way, which took me in this very interesting place. But it wasn't until years later, I kind of, interestingly enough, unlearned those lessons at my next job, only to come back to it several years later at, at Meetup. And so you got your day job, media coordinator. Uh, mm-hmm. I know that job well because I was in ad operations, which was probably a portion of your job. It's all the ad trafficking, super technical, very menial, lowest yep. on the totem pole you can possibly be. But so you start getting into the analyzing and how did you learn how to do that? Like, were you just naturally inquisitive? Or were you just curious about how stuff worked and you wanted to break it down and put it back together? Or did you have some mentors or, or anyone else kind of showing you what to look for? Yeah. I mean, there was a a way of doing it at the time that was all getting invented as we go. So there was sort of like a very rudimentary idea and it was just scientific method at the time. And I'm I'm a scientist. My dad's a scientist. Like I grew up in a family full of of scientists, you know, my dad's a scientist. And so the scientific method is very much part of like who I am and kind of my, my upbringing. And so, yeah, I just applied scientific method I learned in college and got to dive into the numbers and just made it up as we were going along. And it worked out just fine. <laughs> like, like, the proof was that the results kept getting better and better the more experiments we ran. And that in and of itself is like a dopamine hit for a data nerd. And that, I was hooked at that point on the opportunity to be able to like, use that kind of a, a lever to go. And of course, as a 24-year-old at the time, 25-year-old, I probably misinterpreted those findings to be like, oh, I can do anything, right? There's nothing I can't do. And I probably didn't <laughs> lessons. Yeah. <laughs> of the time, the lesson I should have learned was like work really, really hard and stay focused on creating value. And I think the lesson I learned instead was like, oh, this internet thing is easy and I'm going to be a billionaire in no time. And, and so when I went to the next thing that I worked on, I, I, I jumped into this thing that I had no business jumping into for all the wrong reasons and quickly got kicked in the teeth and learned uh, just how not to make a career decision <laughs> at that point. But what's cool is that you're taking the scientific method to this thing that you're working on every single day, but then you're also kind of taking the scientific method to your approach, right? Like you're iterating on your approach. You're learning about how to analyze in this way. You're working differently than everybody else. And you're kind of iterating and tinkering and getting a feedback loop from your peers that it's, that it's working and you're getting feedback because you're getting these promotions. And so this is one of the things I'm always so interested by is I talk to more people that work in growth. They all have a story of that which is that I kind of treated my career in the same way that I treat these growth projects. And it seems like you did that as well, whether you realized it or not. No, very much. I mean, at the time I didn't realize it because the thing that I then went on to go do, I did everything wrong, right? And I learned every lesson that then became the pivotal lesson for me being really successful in the things that worked well at Meetup all came from from that startup that I went to, right? So the startup was like, for whatever reason, we got it in our heads that we were going to be a stealth startup. And that we weren't going to tell anyone anything about what we were doing. Even like my fiance, my, my girlfriend, who became my fiance and my wife. We didn't tell my family members. Like we were just very, very stealthy. And we thought that that was the way to go. It sounded really cool. In fact, what ended up happening as a result was we just never ended up talking to customers. Except for like this one time or two times that we actually 
rented one of the facilities in like we rented a facility in Atlanta, another one in Cleveland to go do a focus group. And we sort of did that like two-way mirror focus group where we were watching and it felt very scientific and very real. And I realized like only in retrospect that that was the, like the opposite of what we should do. We, in total, we talked to like 16 people while as a company, we burned through like $6 million of, uh, <laughs> of capital. And I was working with really, really, really smart people who I was learning from, but they were all kind of big company people. And in retrospect, we could have talked to 16 people anywhere, right? And, and we could have gotten that learning inside of a week and a half or, you know, or less and just done it over and over and over again. And so ultimately, the thing that was a really cool idea never really came to light. And instead of going IPO, like I had, was certain was going to happen 12 months in, uh, you know, the company basically wound down 18 months later. And what did I, all I really had to learn from the lesson was like, hey, get in front of customers, talk to people, iterate, launch and iterate, launch and iterate, launch and iterate. And that's how you're going to learn. I mean, so at the time, I didn't know it, but it was fundamental to the thing that actually made me much more successful at Meetup than I would have been had I not had that the underlying extraordinarily painful experience. I mean, it's tough, right? Because those experiences suck. Uh, I've never had an experience to that extent, but I've had plenty of failures myself. And that's when you learn the most, right? You don't, it's harder to learn lessons when everything's going great and things are up and to the right and you're on this rocket ship and every month the mountain gets bigger and bigger and bigger and all that good stuff. It's a lot harder. You have to really want to learn and really be paying attention and really going out of your way to talk and to network and to pick brains and all that kind of stuff. It's way easier to learn when something really bad happens and you can't <laughs> avoid it, right? It's right in your face staring at you. It's and so totally it's tough though. It doesn't make it feel good. No, no. I mean, and, and it was a period that afterwards, my confidence was really shaken. It was really brutal, to tell you the truth. And I went back to business school as a result, just be like, I've got these gaps in my education. I've got these gaps in my knowledge. I really have to shore them up. And so I went back to business school. I went to Warden, you know, it was a great school. But ultimately, I think... You know, the main thing that I learned was the thing I learned at the startup, which was if you can talk to your customers early and often and iterate and find ways of validating your core assumptions quickly, like run towards the fire, as one of my mentors says, like run towards the fire. That puts you in a position to be able to like fix the thing early. And if you can't fix it, well, good. You just saved yourself a whole lot of time. And so the most important lesson I should have learned from that one, or for instead of going back to business school, the real thing I learned early on was identify the key, key risk go after it as quickly as you can and validate that assumption. You know, when I was at Meetup, one of, one of the things I used to say over, over time was that, you know, our biggest risk is that we're going to hire really, really smart people. They're going to make logical decisions based on faulty assumptions. And no matter how smart you are and how sound your logic is, you're going to fail if you're operating off of a faulty assumption. And so that was, again, one of those lessons that I would love to say that on day one, when I arrived at Meetup, that's exactly what I did. And when I started working there, it was nothing but success in that regard. It wasn't. It was, a, it was kind of a continuation of that earlier journey where I kept uh, kind of stumbling my way towards the right path. And then actually another mentor of mine, Douglas Atkin, who is an amazing guy. He wrote this book called The Culting of Brands, which I think everyone should read. The Culting of Brands. I'll say it again. So it's everyone. We'll put it in the show notes. Okay, cool. And he ended up being just a profound impact. I mean, he ended up going to, a, to be an early person at Airbnb, shaping their Belong Anywhere campaign, Belong Anywhere point of view and strategy. But he really turned me on to this idea that like, if you have the right insight early on, it can point you in the right direction and you can save a lot of time and you're much more likely to win if you have the right insight early on. And that's what really got me thinking about. That's what turned me on to assumption validation and got me involved in the lean startup community. And then I got to meet a bunch of peers 
and people that I got to learn from as well. So I got to learn from a lot of other people as well and share what I was learning. And this community together, we really kind of rose up together and had a great experience. And actually, in exchanging notes with them, that was also part of my motivation as kind of the seed was planted for like, oh, you don't just have to learn from your own experiences. You can learn from everyone else. And that's really the core of the essence of do what works, if you think about it. Yeah, super cool. Yeah, right. In the same way that you've seen over and over in your career, learn from your own mistakes, learn from your own experiences, but then also grab these mentors, grab these friends, grab business case studies, do all these other things and see if you can accelerate your learning. It's the exact same thing that's just applied to the world of growth. Exactly. Over and over again. Cool. And so can you talk a little bit more about some of the early days at Meetup? Like, How did that come to be? How did you get involved in that? And how did you... Because I know that when we've talked offline, you've told me about how the trajectory there and how growth was built into the DNA. I want to I explore that a little bit more with you. Yeah. Meetup was... Uh, I was really fortunate to get to be a part of that. So that early company I told you about, the agency called uh, iTraffic, which was kind of the world's first online marketing agency, uh, the person who ran that ended up leaving to go start a new company, which ended up being Meetup. And so I, when I was going... Before I went back to business school... You know, he asked me to get involved and I did a consulting project to them as they were just getting off the ground and I made their first $14 of revenue. He said, can you, can you help us prove out our business model? And so I basically just got a list of the places that meetups were going to be sent to. And I got a list of venues and that the hypothesis was, hey, we can send foot traffic to restaurants and restaurants will pay money for that foot traffic. Now, again, keep in mind, this is 2002. So like Google ads weren't a thing that like local businesses were buying at the time. It was kind of crazy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that, was, that was our hypothesis. And we were... So I basically got a list of places that were about to host meetups uh, that meetups were going to go to. And I called, I called them up and I'd say, okay, look, we're going to send you 14 people next Tuesday. Do you want us to keep doing that every week? And if the answer is yes, just pay us a little bit of money. I think... And I just made it up. I was like, pay us a dollar a person in order to host a, host a meetup. And aside from getting really lucky on my first call, most of the answers I heard was no, 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 right? But what I did was, which was really fun, was every time I'd get to the point where I'd make the pitch and then I'd hear no, I'd say to the person on the other line, okay, all right, I'm done selling you. I'm not going to take your money, even if you try and give it to me. But is there anything I said that was remotely interesting? And they're like, okay, don't talk to me about sending me traffic on a Friday night. I got a line out the door. But if you can send me traffic on like a Monday afternoon, yeah, that sounds pretty good. So you're literally doing the same thing, right? So you're just trying to learn from the experience, not trying to push too hard, not going for a conversion, just trying to learn, validate, learn from the customers exactly what you said you didn't do in the first go round. Exactly. Off the jump. That's exactly right. So that was this like this, the, the night and day, complete opposite. And boy, did that work so much better. So I would start with the pitch. It wasn't like a straight research call. It wasn't like, hey, I'm launching this new thing. Can you give me insight? I would start by trying to sell. The second I'd hear no, and maybe... A, uh, you know, when I hear no and it sounded pretty definitive, I would then switch into research mode and get insights on like, is there anything at all that I said that was remotely cool? And then refine it on the next pitch over and over again. And really inside of like 20 calls, got to a recipe that was pretty effective and was able to get it codified, written up, handed off to them, to the core folks uh, that were at Meetup. And then uh, they hired a salesperson who was able to kind of drive it from there and that helped them. You know, uh, that was a, a nice little thing that they could say as they were uh, raising money which is that, yeah, we've already got this proven business model that seems to be working. So that was sort of like my very, very first exposure in a meetup. And then there's a crazy journey from there. It was a very, very long and winding and odd journey from there. And I know that you've got a million different stories in here, but what memories, I guess, come as you kind of reflect on it when it comes to learning and experimentation and 
maybe trying some other things that didn't work out so well. Cause I know that it was obviously a very successful uh, and long one over there, but mm-hmm. tell me a little bit more about some of the growth journey. Yeah. I mean, there's a few phases of meetup that is a journey in terms of like what made meetup grow. And then there's the, my own personal experience in the growth journey, which maybe I can touch on both. That sounds like a good plan. Yeah, for sure. So as a company meetup, and I have to really give credit to Scott and to Matt and Peter and, and the folks that really like dreamed up meetup in, in a pretty, pretty profound way. But like from day one, meetup was sort of built to be layered onto networks. And so the way that meetup got its first million users was by layering on top of online communities, which at the time were like Elvis fans, you know, communicating online and basically giving them the opportunity to meet up locally with the folks that they've been communicating with online for years. And so kind of like this big idea, like number one was sort of around layer on top of this network. In the same way that people don't usually remember this, but like YouTube was really born from layering on top of MySpace and being able to embed your YouTube videos into MySpace. And Facebook layered into a dense network that was college campuses. We did the exact same thing, but we were layering onto these online networks, giving people the ability to meet up offline. So that was good from like zero to one million. Amazing, right? Most companies don't even get to do that at the time. And it was bonkers. The idea of meeting strangers online, crazy. crazy. (laughs) (laughs) So the next iteration though was around sort of like seeing the users start to use the system in a way that was different than the way as engineers. And what ended up happening, it's a long story, but what ended up happening is that kind of local leaders started to sort of step up and create groups using Yahoo groups. And we saw that this role of organizer was this really important role. And so the company basically made a massive bet that throughout the entire way that Meetup worked and rebuilt all of it from the ground up, focusing on organizers and members, which is now kind of the the DNA of how everyone knows Meetup now. It wasn't that way at all. But in the process of doing that, the user experience got way, way better. And you end up having this really virtuous flywheel, right? Which you have organizers drawing in members and members attract organizers. And now it's just a really smooth running machine. And so once you have the flywheel going, that's sort of like phase two of Meetup's growth story. And that was good to get from like 1 million to let's say 4 million or so to just that transition. And then from there, it's just about optimize the flywheel, optimize the flywheel, get the friction out, get your conversion rate, uh, convert, improve conversion rate on every friction point in the experience. And if you can do that, the flywheel will naturally and organically take off on its own, uh, which is what we did, which is what got us. And when I was there from the, you know, again, from that 4 million to about 40 million before I ended up leaving. So that's sort of like the three phases. And then with regard to like where experimentation really took place is within the friction, is in the optimization phase and optimize the flywheel. And there we learned all the, exper- all the lessons and it was kind of your classic journey from like people being like, I don't want to run experiments. They're too costly. They take too much time. I'm not going to do it. Let's just go, right? To running, like figuring out a way to get people to run one experiment. And in the process, seeing like a double digit lift in our core revenue flow, we're like, that is pretty awesome. People liked it. And so we did it again and we kept winning because we were so unoptimized. It was like, there's wins to be had everywhere <laughs> in the process. And then kind of classically, we then invested in growing the team so we could run more experiments. We invested in the technology to make it possible. There was no such thing as Optimizely or, or you know, UWR or any of those sites, any of those engines at the time. So we built it ourselves to make it faster. And we sort of ran from one end of the ship, one side of the boat to the other side of the boat too quickly. And then everybody wanted to experiment with everything. It suddenly became this question of being like, oh, instead of using judgment, every time there was like a debate, it was like, oh, let's test it. 
and let's test it in a super systematic and scientific way. And that was a kind of a silly, silly thing in retrospect, because when you start breaking everything down into its tiniest little piece, it will take you a million years to learn anything or to get anything done of meaning. And so, you know, the lesson that we had to learn was kind of too much of it in the wrong way is a bad thing. And it was really about sort of understanding, like, you have a limited number of experiments. Let's use them wisely on things that are most likely to have a big impact and that will affect a lot of people. And that, in retrospect, sounds extremely obvious, but, but it took a little bit of a wandering through the woods to figure that one out. Cool. But what you made it through the journey, which a lot of people I feel like they're listening to this probably struggle with, which is you work at a company you intuitively see some opportunity, right? You kind of know what friction looks like. You know that something doesn't, you know, you can look at the spreadsheets and see that that number doesn't look as high as it should be. And then you can look at the experience and see some things that you could experiment with. But culturally, sometimes it takes a little bit to get the buy-in, to get someone who says, hey, yes, we can challenge the way that it's always been done. We can challenge the way that the early team thought it was supposed to be like, how did that process go? Was that was there debate on that internally? I mean, you said you started totally on the opposite side. Was that was that something yeah. that you struggled with? Yeah, for sure. I mean, and it's it's all good natured because if like when you're running an experiment, one you need to instrument the experiment, and that takes resources, which are in short supply, especially engineering resources. Oh, and then and that takes time. Yeah. So that slows you down. So the thing you wanted to get out by Q1 by January in order to take advantage of these resolutions. Now that's on the edge of not being able to get done because you want to run an experiment before that, right? And then when you're not only that, you don't just launch it. Now you have to launch it and evaluate it. So now this thing is going to take another month to see. So it's very costly to to get it going, right? And so the people who were sort of not necessarily excited about it right away had very good reason to not be excited because they were optimizing for, hey, let's go. Let's let's keep going and, and just take swings. And ultimately... What I ended up doing was finding a very, very easy implementation in a very high value place, which was the monetization flow. And through whatever it took, was able to corral the people involved to get people to run this experiment with me, that just to do it and get people excited to do it. And thank goodness the first one worked. <laughs> <laughs> which for most people doesn't typically happen. Well, I know good. the odds are not in their favor, but the first one worked and we were able to show, look, we just had a double digit lift. I don't remember what it was, but I remember it was a double digit lift. And so because of that, there was a bit of head scratching and like, okay, can we do that again? And we did. Right? And, it, and that worked as well. And then there was others that didn't work, but, but thankfully I think we had enough momentum from the early ones and that were winners and we were able to build the momentum and kind of with organizational change in general, I sort of feel like momentum is everything. Yeah. Yeah. And so if you can get a win and you can show momentum, then wins beget wins and things really take off. And the people who see the other teams getting wins sort of peek their head over and like, well, how are they doing that? And then they want to do it too. So it's very much human nature. I get where people are coming from and why they'd be reluctant, but those are the kind of forces that you need to overcome. And, And if you can come out of the gate, with something to show, then obviously it's a lot easier to keep making the case than if, if you don't. That's pretty cool. And so you went from this place where you had very little that was optimized, very little momentum to all of a sudden you get a win on the board, you get a little bit of momentum that begets more momentum. It sort of snowballs from there. And then you were saying it got to a point where you got too much momentum and you had to kind of pump the brakes a little bit, which is just a cool journey for anyone who works in growth, right? Like what a trajectory from having to sort of beg and scrap and steal and hide your your resources so that nobody knows what you're up to, to getting to this point where it's built into the DNA of the company. 
It's cool. That's right. And, you know, in the process was able, like I was asked to, to take on more and more responsibility as a result of some of those wins. But when I took those leadership roles, you know, it was under my time that we went almost too hard in some regards with experimentation. We learned some of those lessons as well. And so, you know, we were able to get hockey stick like growth during that time from running these experiments. But if you're going to err, you might as well err on running too many tests. I wouldn't yeah. ever want to count to people on not running experiments, but there's definitely a lot of lessons learned now with hindsight you can run the experiments more effectively. That's sort of the right art, which is the art and science of experimentation is testing the right things and testing them in ways that are most likely to be in your favor. Yeah, yeah, which is cool. And so you started to just talk about it there, which is as you transition into a leadership role, mm -hmm. what do you think are the most important skills for someone who works in growth in a leadership role to be successful? Yeah, it obviously depends on the stage of the company and kind of where you're at as a company in terms of the size and where you are in your journey and how much you've proven out. But, but I think the parts that are kind of universally true are probably one is a willingness to understand that you're probably wrong more often than not, right. To understand that you're making a lot of assumptions and to get people to understand that they're making assumptions and to be cool with course correcting quickly. You know, one of the things I used to do is I used to, for every new employee that joined, I, we had these lunch and learns and what I would do is I would show them, experiments in the past that we had run and I'd make everyone guess what the winner was. Super fun. Right. And I would do it in a way that was also like, I picked the obviously the most counterintuitive experiments you could, we could find. Yeah. So that no one could get through the orientation without having like gotten it wrong at least once. And I really wanted them to experience that to reinforce them that it's cool to be wrong. It's not cool to take a long time and be wrong. It's cool to be wrong if you can move quickly and course correct. And that's really what I wanted to convey. And I think as a leader in a growth organization, that's kind of the mindset you have to inspire to be able to get people to be willing to course correct quickly and get things out there before they're comfortable. Because most of the time when people aren't running experiments or they're not optimizing, it's because they're afraid. Mm. And so if you can sort of get them over that hump and create enough endorphins or muscle memory of wins hitting them in the right way, and that it's okay to get it out there and to not win, but to be able to course correct fast, then that is the kind of thing that I think builds the right culture within the organization. So that would probably be the most important thing as a leader that I would cancel regardless of the size of the company. Oh, that's a really cool lesson, right? So I feel like creating that culture of experimentation and although you didn't use this word, really humility, right? You're bringing in these people, super smart, successful people that probably know the playbook or at least what you think will be the playbook for the next level of growth. And then you're bringing them in and saying, hey, you might not know everything you think you know. Right. There's some stuff that we're learning. We're all learning it together. Here's some stuff that's surprising. Hey, come on in. But here's how we make decisions. And we're surprised all the time. You might be surprised too. And I think that that's just a, a different approach than a lot of companies take. That's a different cultural value. That's really cool. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. And, and I think you, you framed it very eloquently. Well, thank you. I mean, well, because I've struggled with these challenges too, right? So I've been at companies that uh, have been more receptive to having a growth DNA, a DNA of experimentation. But it doesn't mean that everybody at the company feels that way. And it doesn't mean when you bring in new members of the leadership or on the management team that they understand all that context and have been brought up in those environments. And so what I've learned is that you constantly need to be re-teaching people what growth is, how the approach works, mm -hmm. some of the cultural DNA, structural values for the team, all that kind of stuff. And so it's cool that you actually built it into your onboarding flow for everybody, right? Not just for people that work on growth, but for everybody who joined the company. Exactly. And encourage them to understand that you can run experiments in customer support. And I've shown them experiments from customer support. I've shown them experiments from other parts of the organization. 
that it's not just products, it's not just marketing. You can learn if you're systematic or you can think through, if you can think about the challenges in a way that lets you validate those assumptions quickly. And sometimes right. it's just about having conversations. It doesn't have to be a formal structured experiment. Sometimes you're just talking to a lot of people, talking to eight people really, really quickly or early can give you a lot of insight. Will it be 99.9% scientific? No. Will it be better than 75%? Yes. And that's a lot better than a coin flip, right? Which a lot of people don't even do. So because they can't get better than a coin flip, they settle for a coin flip when they don't have to. Right. Or they come in and they make a decision based on the previous way that they've seen it done. And they just sort of assume that it's the way to do it. And sometimes it's not, it's just the way that everyone else does it, but it doesn't actually mean it's the most effective. And so it sounds like you've championed the growth approach to solving many different problems around the business, not just conversion ones. That's right. That's right. It's cool. So tell me about some of the mistakes, man. You've kind of mixed in a few of these. You talked about not talking to enough customers. Tell me about some of the flops or like tough lessons you've learned on this journey. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, there were several. Uh, <laughs> I'm trying to pick the era from which to pick it from. So you know, we touched on some of those mistakes that I made early on in that kind of startup that I, I went to for all the wrong reasons. I cratered. And there's definitely a lot of lessons there in terms of like choosing, having the right motivation for what you're working on, for where you're going to work and why and how. Then there was the experiments that we ran. You know, early on in the meetup days as well, I ran some, some initiatives where it was a lot of like, we didn't run the experiments. We launched big, big things saying, ta-da, <laughs> here's your new thing without having talked to folks. And, and the assumptions were so flawed that it was encountered with like massive backlash that if we had literally just had like 10 conversations, 20 conversations, we would have been in a much better spot. As a result of those, actually, we learned to create like an in-house usability lab to make it just effortless and painless to bring people in. We used to bring people in five days a week and just had people scheduled to come into our office every day at like 1 p.m. And regardless of knowing what we wanted to show them, we would pay people to show up at our office for a half an hour and we had a moderator that we trained, which was a, you know, a very junior person who trained, who learned to be a moderator. And basically every morning, that person would say, hey, who's got something they want to show to users today? Wow. And what enabled, that enabled us to do was to start getting really rapid feedback on these things and learning very quickly. And use the word humility. Yeah, it, it's an extremely humble experience. Watching somebody use the thing you built is so humbling. Right. You see they yeah. triple click on something that's not clickable or they scroll right past the thing. You're, it's painful, man. Completely. And so that was kind of one of those big things that was the result of... So that like the failure part was like launching these big, big launches of which there were several. That, and some of which I was directly like the person who was responsible for the messaging around it. And if I had just spoken to folks beforehand, that would have gone... It would have been much, much smoother. Would it have been... It was the transition from going from free to fee is what I'm referring to. We went from you know, completely free service to four feet. So yeah. I don't think it would have been completely painless. I think no matter how you do that, uh, we would have incurred some pain. But boy, would I have done that a lot better. And as a result of like, those mistakes, ended up building this, this usability lab that actually, if users are curious, we actually ended up open sourcing the playbook for how to create your own in-house lab. I mean, this is like a long time ago, but a lot of the principles are still relevant. If you uh, Google lean usability, you can find this early presentation we gave that sort of just said, like, this is how you do it if you want to recreate your own, that you can probably modernize in a pretty dramatic way. But it was just, is... we did it for like, we did hundreds of experiments a year for, I think, $30,000 total, which is nothing for that level of experimentation. Usually that's what it costs to run like one session. That's amazing. 
And I feel like what I've seen a lot of software companies do is they'll do like a user testing service, usertesting.com. There's a whole bunch of competitors, but there's no better feedback loop than a real person sitting down. You're looking over their shoulder or, you know, in some environment, so to speak, looking over their shoulder. And so that's cool that you built that into the DNA of the company. That's right. Well, the, the key idea there is to, if you can get comfortable with a little bit of error, what, what people get very wrapped up on is, oh, this has to be scientific. Right. And in the same way, thinking back to those focus groups that I went to, and there's a two-way mirror and there's a sterile lab and there's a professional moderator. And that you're meant to believe that that's scientific for some reason. That's full of its own error. That's just jam-packed with a different kind of error. Yeah. And so I generally believe that if you can trade frequency for precision, you can make up for error very, very quickly. So you can live with error if you can do a lot of iteration as long as the impact of, of error is not going to sink your company or kill you or, or literally kill you as a human. So would I recommend medical devices being run this way? No, for sure not. But for what we're doing, you can live with a lot of error and make it up by having a lot more frequency of optimization. Super cool. And what advice outside of talking to your customers, running into the fire, I'm trying to think of the other lessons that you, uh, that you hit us along the way with, but like, what advice would you give to someone who's working in growth, who's building out their skill set today? Yeah. So one is learn from everyone around you. There's so much to learn today. I mean, in this resources community, the, the PLG community, there's so many people you can tap into and learn from. And it's, a, it's remarkable. I actually, like, there are days where I just think to myself, I can't believe how much good stuff there is. And, I, and I'm learning from them. Right. And, and I'm so excited to be able to, to, to share ideas, but also to to get back from the community as well. I've learned yeah. so much. So one is to do that. Two, from a career point of view, I think the advice I'd give is to focus on making a difference. Like it goes back to like, there's, there's been times in my career where I've just been super focused on like doing something really cool and like creating a lot of value and just letting everything be figured out. And there were times in my career where I was just like, I really want to get this promotion. I really want to get this certain title. And I made all the wrong decisions when I was optimizing for like my own personal career growth, like your career in quotes. And I've managed people who are very career driven. And I've managed people who are very value driven, who just say like, there's one person I managed that said, you are kind of amazing. You know, you could be the CEO of this company someday. And this is like a fairly junior hire at the time. It's like, you could be the CEO of this company someday. And he's like, yeah, I don't really care. And I was like, you are so millennial to say that. He's like, oh, <laughs> that's not what I'm optimizing for. I'm just trying to like really create something valuable or do really cool things and make interesting things happen and make a difference. And he just shot through the ranks. He was unbelievable. And, and he just was, was able to have this career trajectory like no one I've ever seen. And there's other folks I've managed who I swear like on a biweekly basis, we would be in a conference room mapping out their career. And those people just did not have nearly that kind of trajectory. And the irony, at least in my experience, uh, both of myself personally and the people that I've managed, is anytime you chase the title, when you get it, it never feels like what you hoped it would feel like. It never feels that good. It doesn't feel fulfilling. It often feels kind of empty and confusing. And then you're sort of left thinking, like, why did I care so much about this? And now what the hell do I do? Because I'm stuck here. And so uh, that's, that's a great piece of advice, right? Optimize for value, optimize for learning, focus on giving, and the rest will take care of itself. Exactly, exactly. And then once you get there, you're in a position where you're actually doing the things that create a lot of value. So you're very aligned as opposed to like running teams that you necessarily don't, like doing things in a way that got you the title, but didn't actually get you fulfillment or actually let you do the work that you do best. So that's the number one thing. I think you're 100% right. That's great advice, man. 
Thank you. Thank you so much for the time. Thank you for sharing your story, the lessons, the wisdom. For people that are listening to this, they're curious about the product. How can they learn more about it? Should they go to the website? Should they email you? Can they do both? Yeah. So it's uh, dowhatworks.io. We are in a private beta, but we're growing actually on a lot of fronts. One is we're growing the team. So uh, so they can reach out to me, Andres, A-N-D-R-E-S at uh, dowhatworks.io. And uh, we're also starting to let more clients in. So we're working with like three of the top streaming companies online, two, four, five SaaS companies, but we're starting to grow the client base as well. So if people are looking to get involved in as a part of the team, or if they're looking to, to leverage us as a, a resource for their company, they should definitely feel free. And or, you know, just if, if I can be of service to the larger product-led growth community, they should reach out because I, I generally am a big... Spent all these years at Meetup and, and community is part of my DNA. It's amazing. And what kind of companies are like the perfect fit? Like if people are listening to this and they're like, ah, I'm just uh, this kind of company. I don't know if I should reach out or not. Uh, is there a sweet spot today? Yeah. The, the companies that are a really great fit are anybody who's working in product and growth and marketing and working on a conversion rate optimization challenge. So if you're looking to improve or optimize your conversion rate, we can help you find the wins faster. Which is like everybody who's listening to this call, <laughs> at least I would assume so. Anyone who's not, uh, we're flattered that you're here, but these are the people that are here, are people that are working on conversion problems, working on scale problems. That's great. Yeah. And I'm thrilled. These are my people. And so I get to hang out with fellow growth nerds all day, every day and helping them be more successful. So it's a dream. It's a, it's a dream shape for me, for sure. That's ah, amazing. And as I mentioned, I've seen the product. It's badass. Y'all will love it. Andres, thank you again. I appreciate the time, sir. Thanks so my much. My pleasure. 